Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness or find links to all our socials at zerobrightness.com. December. It's not a very spooky time of year, but it is a very contemplative time of year. You know, you're thinking about everything that's happened over the last 12 months, and you're maybe thinking about the past a little bit. Where I live, it gets really, really fucking cold, and I think everything is just a little bit more vivid. The air is crisper, sky is darker, and the silence outside is heavier. I find these things make it easier to remember things in the winter. And so I have a lot of really important and formative memories from the wintertime. I sometimes think about people's obsession with holidays and traditions around this time of year, and I start to wonder if it's not tied into that somehow. Like all of these traditions and things that we partake in or choose not to partake in are just us trying to relive those childhood memories from this time of year. And honestly, I totally get it. When I think about the winter, being a kid, I don't have a specific memory, but I have a really vivid feeling I can remember. I can remember being inside and feeling kind of cozy and looking outside and just seeing utter darkness, like a pitch black sky, darkness like you've never seen in your life. For all you know, there's nothing out there and you're just floating in space. You don't know what's out there and you don't need to know. You're just a kid. You can't do anything about it and you have no reason to go out there. Everything you need is within the four walls of your home. The only things that exist to you are all within reach. That's a feeling that you can only have as a kid before you've gone out into the world on your own, when you don't know what's out there and you just don't need to know. You don't have obligations. You don't have stress. You just don't care. You exist in your own little world. As you grow up and you get older, however, you become intimately acquainted with everything that is out there. And from then on, nights are never dark like that. You're never floating in space again. You're existing within a larger world that you're intimately familiar with. Sometimes through nostalgia, you can get a little glimpse into the past. Maybe you can feel that feeling for a brief moment again, but you'll never fully be immersed in it like you were when you were a kid. To me, this is a form of entropy. Entropy being a gradual decline from order into disorder over time. The term was originally coined to describe a thermodynamic function in the laws of physics. However, it also applies to philosophical ideas. Ideas can undergo entropy can erode over time and move from order and predictability into disorder and chaos. 
I think about that a lot as it pertains to memory and nostalgia. I think everyone knows inherently that those things we felt when we were kids were born from a lack of understanding. The way that everything felt mannered and orderly and easy to understand was an illusion. As we grow up and the illusion is broken, we can see how chaotic, random, and weird the world and the universe around us really is. Nostalgia is a way that we fight against that philosophical entropy. And maybe that's why to me it feels so futile. As I've said so many times on this show over and over and over, you can never go back. And sometimes I don't even get why anyone tries. This idea of philosophical entropy can apply to so many different things, however. Take politics, for example. When we were kids in the 90s, well, if you're the same age as me, I don't know what age you are. Well, if you are the same age as me, you were a kid in the 90s and conspiracy theories were huge. Well, it seemed like a lot of people did really believe in them. A lot more people just saw them as harmless fluff or a weird, quirky thing to be interested in. Over time, these ideas changed, mutated, and eroded, and turned into modern right-wing conservatism, which is rife with insane conspiracy theories and a general detachment from reality that is extremely, extremely disturbing. We can see something similar happening in art and media, however, it's much more of just a weird and fascinating function rather than a horrible, depressing reality. In art and media, entropy can lead us to very, very interesting places. And as the title of this episode suggests, I want to talk about how that has gone down in the sub-sub-sub-genre of super sad RPGs. However, in preparing this episode, I noticed that it was happening in another type of media that I kind of want to talk about and explore before we get to those super sad RPGs. This might seem like a super weird and random tangent, but I promise it's connected, so just go with me here. I want to talk about sitcoms. Yeah, sitcoms. Remember sitcoms? The kind of cheap, hokey, corny, family-oriented comedy shows that ruled the airwaves for decades? I think that when you talk about sitcoms now, you kind of get three different reactions. On the one hand, you've got the nostalgia addicts who love it because it reminds them of their childhood when things were simpler and easier to understand. On the other hand, you've got people who understand that impulse but would still rather not watch them because for the most part, they've aged really poorly and we just have a lot better stuff to watch on TV now. And then you've got the third type of person who is just very, very confused because they can't understand why the fuck anyone would watch sitcoms. Once again, they're cheesy, they're hokey, they're full of cliches, they're frequently cringy and full of weird, problematic stuff. They haven't exactly aged very well. However, they've always been around, and I kind of feel like they're always going to be around. 
There's something powerful about the simplicity and accessibility of sitcoms, especially as mindless entertainment. They've always been incredibly, incredibly adept at that art form. That said, it's impossible to ignore how far sitcoms have fallen in terms of cultural importance and impact in the last 20-ish years. Coming off the highs of the 90s when programming blocks like TGIF, which gave us shows like Step by Step or Family Matters, and hugely popular shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air made sitcoms a big business, the art form really had nowhere to go but down, and that's exactly what happened. Throughout the 2000s, although, once again, sitcoms were still made in great numbers and consumed by a lot of people, we also started to see other kinds of TV pop up within the media landscape. Although embryonic, we started to see new kinds of shows like dark and edgy teen dramas, more adult-oriented mature dramas, we started to see more niche genre stuff like sci-fi and horror shows, and we also started to see early signs of what we now call prestige TV, usually dark, adult-oriented dramas or comedy dramas that were mostly housed on platforms like HBO and Showtime. As people were exposed to these new kinds of TV and they became more and more popular, the sitcoms started to feel more and more and more dated. The announcement of a new sitcom, even if it was a vehicle for a popular comedian, was not the big event that it had been in the 90s. Suddenly, it felt like sitcoms were dated, a little musty, and not really keeping up with the times. This is when we started to see a new kind of sitcom, a sort of subversive, deconstructive take on the sitcom that would take the genre and style in a totally different direction from the predictable family-friendly fare that we had mostly associated with the style. Now, the idea of a subversive sitcom that aims to satirize or upend the traditional tropes of said genre is not new. I mean, The Simpsons has basically been that, and that's been going since the late 80s, early 90s, I think. So it's not necessarily a new idea, but it definitely took on a new life as the art form started to become less and less popular and culturally important. The first real weird subversive take on a sitcom that I saw, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily the first, but it's the first one that I guess came across my proverbial desk, was the British comedy Peep Show. Peep Show began airing in 2003 and ran until 2015. It was a super long-running series that in America was a cult hit and seems to have been quite a bit more popular in its home country. What's so fascinating about Peep Show is the ways that it plays with and subverts the traditions and tropes of the sitcom style. At its core, it's kind of a classic 
odd couple comedy. It follows two characters, Mark and Jez, who met in college and just sort of kept living together afterwards for many years, even though as time passed, they had less and less in common. Mark is kind of a buttoned-up traditionalist at war with the modern world, and Jez is kind of a wannabe bohemian artist who is just trying to have a good time and float through life in kind of a 90s slacker haze. Now there's so many weird twists and turns on the sitcom formula here that I think it's important to break it down. On a formal level, the show is shot and edited in a super unique way. As the title kind of hints at, everything in the show is seen from the point of view of a character in a scene. You're seeing the whole show through their eyes. And this is not just an impressive bit, it's something that the show commits to incredibly hard. Now, I've watched this show a bunch of times over, which really says nothing good about me, so forget that I just admitted to that. But one thing I noticed upon rewatching the show is that even the establishing shots will be a point of view. It'll just be from like a random passerby rather than one of the two main characters or a main character in a scene. It's such a fascinating little detail, but it gives the show its own unique visual identity and its own vibe. This isn't just a visual gimmick though, there's also an audio and an editing component. Because we can also hear the constant inner monologue of our main characters while we're watching the show. This is something that the show uses to great comedic effect. On top of the dialogue that's happening in the scene, we're also getting one or both of the main characters' inner monologues commenting on the scene. I know it doesn't sound like much or it might not sound like much when I'm just saying it in this way, but it's such a huge change to how TV shows are normally shot and edited. It means that there's like twice as much dialogue as there would have been otherwise. And it makes this one of the most densely layered works of comedy ever created. There's so many tiny gags and flyby jokes in this series that it lends itself to being rewatched over and over and over. There's so many, so many hilarious bits here too, where someone will say a line of dialogue and then the internal monologue will contradict it immediately. It's one of the best things about this show and I just really can't get enough of it. The truly wild and subversive thing about Peep Show, however, has nothing to do with its formal qualities, or, you know, mostly nothing. The thing that I've always found fascinating about Peep Show is that it is a very strange and skewed character study first and foremost. Yes, it's a comedy with an incredibly absurdist sense of humor and a really, really over-the-top sense of plotting and pacing, but at its core, it's all about the characters. Mark and Jez aren't just an oddball couple. They're two guys who are also constantly at war with themselves. They're contradictions. Mark is a traditionalist who also loves all the creature comforts of the modern world and also kind of loves being a piece of shit even as he's railing about how far the world has degenerated in the modern day. 
Jez, on the other hand, is a classic wannabe bohemian 90s slacker. However, he doesn't really have anything to offer the world. He's not an artist, although he desperately wants to be a musician, and his attempts at that are truly, truly hilarious. He's not a creator. He doesn't really bring anything to the world or enrich the lives of the people around him. He's sort of just a piece of shit. Yet, he's invented all these different ideas and manifestos to justify the way he is. And it creates this constant tension between him and himself, as well as him and all the characters around him. Now, this description still might give you the hint or suggestion that there's still a bit of hope for these characters, and it could be kind of like a loving portrait of this type of living situation, you know, similar to something like Spaced, another great British sitcom. However, Peep Show is nothing like Spaced. If anything, Peep Show is almost like a horror story about two guys increasingly fucking up their lives. Some of the episodes of this show feel like surreal nightmares, something that the characters will actually comment on within those scenarios. It's both scary and really, really funny. The wedding episode of this show, and I won't say whose wedding, I guess for spoiler reasons, but holy shit, that is just like maybe my favorite episode of television ever. The way that it just escalates from start to finish and becomes more surreal and horrifying and hilarious as it goes on is just masterful. The way this is all squared off and fit within the sitcom template is also genius. One of my favorite things about this show is how it goes back to that old sitcom idea of everything resetting at the end of every episode. Peep Show doesn't strictly follow those rules, like everything doesn't have to reset to A at the end of every episode. However, one thing that continually happens to these characters is that their life circumstances will change drastically, but still lead them back to the exact same living situations or work arrangements that they were dealing with before said changes. It's not a static world, and yet still, nothing ever changes. It has the feel of a classic sitcom, but in a really dark and misanthropic kind of way. Once again, this starts with the first episode and goes right up to the last. And I have to say, I love the ending of the show. I love the last episode. It's so weird and dark and depressing, but also funny. It's just perfect. Peep Show is a great example of how you can take an old style and revitalize it for the modern day. When people want something that's more weird, edgy, and that fits in with our experiences in the modern day. It's not a throwback like a classic family sitcom, but it's also not as dark and horrifying as like a piece of prestige TV. It's something else entirely. Speaking of something else entirely, in the middle of Peep Show's run, another show kind of attempted to update the sitcom for the modern age. That show is The New Girl, and this is not a show that any of you expected me to like or talk about in the middle of this episode, but, well, here we are. I recently started watching The New Girl, and I really, really fucking like it. In a lot of ways, 
The New Girl is like the polar opposite of a show like Peep Show, but in other ways, it's the exact same type of work. It's an update to the sitcom formula that combines formal experimentation with character study and a lot of ideas and practices taken from more serious adult-oriented dramas. In a formal sense, the New Girl's big idea is to make a lighthearted sitcom that looks like a serious drama. The production value is high, the show has a really beautiful look, it's incredibly slick in terms of the way it's shot and edited, it just looks like a high quality product. However, at the core of the show are a bunch of interesting characters that are really fascinating to follow and see how they develop over the course of the show. Like Peep Show, New Girl has a super over-the-top, absurdist, and fast-paced sense of humor. It likes to cram the show full of weird one-off gags, some of which really, really feel like non-sequiturs in a very, very deep and bizarre way. But it also constantly comes back to the characters at the center of the show. One thing that this show does very differently from Peep Show is presenting a world that's in flux. Rather than play with or incorporate that sitcom idea that everything resets at the end of the episode, the new girl goes in a different direction entirely. These characters' lives are constantly in flux. Each season plays out over a surprisingly large number of episodes, and within those episodes, anything can happen. People get together, people break up, People get new jobs, people lose their jobs, people move out. You're never really sure what's going to happen in this show, but you are sure that you're going to keep following the characters and stay invested in their lives and what they're doing. This plays into the whole setup of the show, which finds between like four and six people living in a loft apartment in LA and generally dealing with modern problems and situations. The whole thing feels very fast-paced, it feels very modern, and it feels much more relatable than the stuffy old sitcoms that we watched when we were kids. It's a really interesting mix of classic, lightweight, easy-to-consume entertainment and heavier, more modern ideas. Like I mentioned earlier, there are huge doses of serious drama in this show, and it's not uncommon to find episodes that focus on that serious drama and strike a darker tone. Now, despite the new girl being more of a drama and Peep Show frequently being incredibly dark and disturbing, neither of them really have anything on Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Kevin Can Fuck Himself is a TV series that recently finished airing, and it is fucking fantastic. It's a show that's kind of hard to describe, but in the abstract, it's essentially the end point of this narrative that I'm trying to convey to you. If all these shows I'm listing show how you can change and modernize a sitcom, Kevin Can Fuck Himself shows how you can completely disassemble it and make something much weirder and much darker out of its component parts. The show is set up to flip between two different styles. 
One is a classic 90s sitcom throwback presented in a very, very faithful recreation of that genre. And the other is a more modern, dark drama. The show at first appears to follow the titular character, Kevin, in a cheesy, corny, throwback 90s sitcom. However, it's quickly revealed that that style is only used in scenes where Kevin appears. Whenever he leaves the frame, the show switches over to a more modern, dark drama style and focuses on the character of Allison as portrayed brilliantly by Annie Murphy. The majority of the show follows Allison as she tries to get out of an abusive relationship with Kevin. The framing device that this show uses is so brilliant because it silently and subtly conveys to us how Allison feels about her relationship. Whenever Kevin is around, it's all about him, and she's more or less pulled into his orbit. As she says many times throughout the show, the whole world revolves around him. And at times it's hard to tell if she means it literally or not, but eventually we figure out that what she's trying to say is that Kevin, or a person like him, can only exist in a society that desperately wants to prop him up and shut up any woman who has a complaint about him. The show goes into a lot of detail about the situation and explores a lot of different themes and ideas relating to it, but ultimately, you keep coming back to this framing device and just how brilliantly it explores those themes and presents those ideas to the audience. I truly, truly love this show, and I think it's really, really brilliant. I feel like it shows the endpoint of that philosophical entropy, and it shows how you can take a traditional format and do something really daring and unique and interesting with it. I find these works so fascinating because on the one hand, they feel like they're deconstructions of the core idea, concept, or genre. But on the other hand, they also clearly exist within the same lineage as the original works that they're referencing or parodying. It's like a really transgressive and brilliant way to place your work within a canon or lineage without just regurgitating those tropes or making something that feels tired, hacky, or played out. In this case, entropy is a good thing. The progression from order to chaos creates more interesting art. Now, I think super sad RPGs have undergone this exact same process or metamorphosis over time. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I played Omori. I think Omori is kind of the end point of that process in the same way that Kevin Can Fuck Himself is the end point of that process for sitcoms. But in order to discuss this, we have to go back to the beginning. Where did this genre come from? What even is this genre? I'm not going to describe it to you. I'm just going to tell you what games I think are in it, right? And it all goes back to the original, Earthbound. Now, once again, sorry to keep bringing this up, but if you're around the same age as me, Earthbound may have been the first truly weird game that you played in your life. 
I mean, video games have always had lots of weird, random stuff going on, but Earthbound was the first game that I sat down and played where it felt like from start to finish, it was just really, really weird. I think a lot of other people had that same experience because, at least in America, the game became an instant cult classic. And it was passed around and spoken about in the same hushed tones as one might speak of a banned Samizdat edition of a classic work of literature. Earthbound was just that kind of game. Earthbound is also the perfect game for a weird kid to play and get super into because it's a weird game about weird kids finding their way in the world. Like the aforementioned sitcoms, Earthbound at first seems to slot pretty easily within the genre, this being Japanese role-playing game or JRPG. However, there's so many weird, formal twists on that genre that make it feel nothing like its contemporaries, like more traditional games such as Breath of Fire or Dragon Quest. Earthbound comes in pretty hot with a super unique style and aesthetic. Visually, it's a very colorful, somewhat crude, kiddie type of style that might recall something you would have seen on Nickelodeon in the 90s. Its setting was also incredibly unique. It was set in a relatively realistic, modern-day America proxy that is also filled with a ton of weird shit, like weird creatures, strange happenings, aliens. It feels a lot like, well, Twin Peaks, for lack of a better comparison, which once again in the RPG genre at the time was super weird, unexpected, and unique. Earthbound begins with a group of kids being told by an insect that emerges from a meteor that there's a great evil coming and that they need to save the world. I had to say that like so many times to get it because that is just a really odd sentence. For the rest of the game, we follow said group of kids as they move through this strange and beautiful world, meeting weird creatures, oddball characters, and once again, trying to save the world. There's a lot of really striking things about Earthbound, like the really weird combat system, which is partially based on rhythm, but also just based on randomized things that the characters can do, like get tired or depressed. It's really, really strange. But the most striking thing to me was how vague the story is. Now, over the years, there's been an increasingly bizarre succession of fan theories attempting to explain exactly what is going on in Earthbound, and I kind of understand why. See, the story of Earthbound is purposefully incredibly vague. We don't really know why these characters are on this quest or how exactly they're going to complete it. Once we even come face to face with the great evil that's threatening the earth, we still don't understand who or what it is. It's like a weird black hole at the center of the story. What is this thing? Why do we need to stop it? What is the purpose of all this? Now, understandably, this led to a lot of people trying to find answers. However, my personal take on this game has always been that it's supposed to be weird and vague. 
And you're not supposed to understand what is going on in this game. See, Earthbound was written and directed by a Japanese artist mostly known as a writer. And while I think that this isn't something that's immediately obvious about the game if you didn't already know that factoid, the more time I've spent with this game over the years, the more I feel like that writerly touch is present in how the world is constructed and how the narrative conveys emotion. See, I think that the most fascinating thing about Earthbound and kind of the whole point of the narrative here is to give the player that feeling of being a little kid who doesn't understand how the world works. It's to convey to you that confusion you feel as someone who doesn't understand how the world works and yet is forced to venture out into it and ultimately save it. I think it's kind of like a whole game that ends up being an essay about that feeling of looking out the window and seeing that dark winter night. There's a desire to understand it, but there's also an inherent acknowledgement that you don't know what it is. There's a mystery at the center of it that you just can't solve. To me, that mysterious antagonist at the end of the game has the exact same feel as so many other elements in the game. Like, why do you call your dad on the phone and ask him for money but never see him in person? What happened there? What led to that? Why are some characters more prone to mood swings and changes in their demeanor? What happened there? What led to that? When you get to the big bad at the end of the game, it feels like just another weird mystery that you don't understand because you're a kid. This is something that Itoi more or less confirmed in an interview where he said that that particular entity to him represented a traumatic childhood experience. It wasn't a concrete thing that could easily be presented or understood. It was something else entirely, something that you just kind of had to go with and you had to feel. I don't think that the storytelling or narrative in Earthbound is really at all similar to like the dense and political writing that you find in his next game, Mother 3. However, I think that its style is wholly unique, not just within the Mother series, but also within video games and JRPGs as a whole. A game that's trying to use any tactics it can to give you such a weird, diffuse, and abstract feeling and succeeds at it is a game that should be celebrated basically for the rest of time. Now, eventually the acknowledgement of how amazing Earthbound is would come. However, in the years following it, it was something that was a much more subdued type of celebration. Once again, the kind of thing that was passed around, spoken about in hushed tones, and mostly revered by fringe underground figures. One of those figures was a Japanese game developer named Kikiyama, who in 2004 released the game Yume Nikki. Now, I think most people listening know that I am obsessed with Yume Nikki and I love it. I named one of my bands after it. It is a very, very big deal to me. And although I have talked about that on this show before, I've never really gone into why exactly, which is what I want to try to do now. 
At first blush, Yume Nikki kind of felt like an Earthbound fan game to me. It has a really similar art style and aesthetic. I guess if I had to describe it relative to Earthbound, I would say it's like someone took the visual style and aesthetic from the battle sequences in Earthbound and developed an entire game around that. The visual style and presentation of Yume Nikki is really, really important when discussing the game because it's the main thing that links it to that lineage of super sad RPGs and that kind of puts it in any sort of cultural context at all. Without it, I think the game would just be considered a really strange, surreal, and offbeat walking sim. But with that visual style and some of the references scattered throughout the game, it feels like a spiritual successor to something like Earthbound, if not some of the other more offbeat RPGs of the late 90s and early 2000s. Yumeniki is a game where you play as a shut-in named Madatsuki, a very ambiguous and mysterious figure who seems to live alone in an apartment that they refuse to leave. The game begins in the real world where you can walk around the one-room apartment, you can mess around with their computer, take a look at what they have scattered around the room, but that's about it. There's nothing really to do in the real world except go to sleep. When you go to sleep, the real game begins. Here you're tasked with exploring a number of strange and surreal dream worlds and finding items that will I don't know, leads you to the end of a very weird and inscrutable quest. The thing that I think Yumeniki borrows from Earthbound the most is that feeling of mystery, that vague sense of not understanding why you're doing the things you're doing or what is going on. Your early time with Yume Nikki can be kind of weird and frustrating. You're just wandering around, you're not sure what to do, you're not sure why you're doing anything. And what usually ends up hooking people, beyond that aforementioned really weird and cool art style, is getting into the groove of the game and finding some really weird, cool, and interesting secrets. A lot of the best moments of Yume Nikki happen really unexpectedly. You may be wandering around one area when you discover a path to another area, which leads to a path to another area, which will ultimately lead you to some sort of scripted event that feels more composed or like a piece of a larger narrative. Now, these events are usually really, really strange. They can be as subtle as a weird descending staircase surrounded by hands, or they can be as straightforward and unsubtle as the famous Uboa jump scare. There are so many cool little things like this to find in this game that once again, once you get into the languid rhythm and start enjoying the pace of this game, it becomes really fascinating. It's sort of like a cross between a weird toy you can mess with and an entire other world that you can just go and exist in for a while. Now, I have to admit that most of the time when I've brought up this game or I've spoken about it, most of my thoughts on it have kind of ended there because if I want to get into what makes this game so impactful and so important to a lot of people like myself, we have to talk about the ending. 
And the problem with that is number one, I guess, spoilers, although I think everyone knows how I feel about that. But the other problem here is that it's a massive fucking bummer. Like, it's just such a bummer. Um, and it's hard to talk about, and it gets into, well, it gets into suicide. So I guess this is your content warning here. So to tie it back to what I was talking about earlier, Yume Nikki has a lot of formal innovations when viewed as a JRPG. It's actually a kind of radical reinvention of that style of game that mostly only uses the visual cues and some presentation quirks. The big idea here is that the whole game is open-ended and freeform. It's not an open-world game, but actually maybe it kind of is, like some sort of early proto-open-world game? I'm not sure. If that's all this game was though, I think the conversation surrounding it would be very different. Another game that Yume Nikki gets compared to a lot is LSD Dream Emulator, an experimental Japanese PS1 game that literally just simulates being caught inside a weird psychedelic dreamscape. LSG Dream Emulator is really, really cool, but it's mostly cool as a piece of interactive art. It's barely a video game at all, and I think the lack of any sort of frame story or anything tying all of its ideas together keeps it from being more than just a curiosity or, like I said, an interesting piece of interactive art. Yume Nikki has a lot of similarities to LSD in terms of its visual style, presentation, and the general way that it approaches the concept of a video game where you can explore dreams or a dreamlike state. However, Yume Nikki is very different, mostly in the sense that it has a narrative and it has characters. This is something that I think kind of gets glossed over when a lot of people talk about this game because well, it's missing a lot of the traditional narrative stuff, like cutscenes, dialogue, a linear progression. In a lot of ways, Yume Nikki is made to appear as if it doesn't have these things, but if you play through the entire game, you quickly learn that it does. Now, like Earthbound, a lot of these characters and situations are shrouded in mystery. We're not really given the keys or tools to understand who these characters are or what's going on. And the more you play this game, the more you're conditioned to just kind of accept whatever it puts in front of you. You're on a weird psychedelic journey. You're not really supposed to understand everything and everything's not supposed to make sense. The story doesn't progress in a linear way. We're not walking a path, we're just kind of wandering around. All of this changes with the game's infamous and shocking ending. Once you've completely explored all of the game's worlds and found all of the items that are presented as sort of the way to progress the main quest, your character wakes up from the dream, walks to the balcony of their apartment, and jumps off. It's a super dark and shocking ending that if you didn't know it was coming, really takes you by surprise. Yume Nikki is a weird and dark game. There's a lot of ominous and scary stuff in it, but seeing such a horrible real-world occurrence in the Technicolor dream world of Yume Nikki 
is really, really impactful. I think that a lot of people might also just write this off as like edgy 2000s era bullshit, like something you would have seen in like a Newgrounds game, but it really, really isn't. What I've always loved about this ending is that it drives home the point of the entire game and it makes everything come together very, very suddenly. The end of this game feels like the end of the usual suspects or something, when you suddenly realize what's going on and piece everything together in one moment of realization. Yume Nikki isn't just a game about a depressed shut-in who has an overactive imagination. It's a game about someone trying to figure out what they want to do. Do they want to continue living or do they want to die? By presenting the whole game as an exploration of this character's inner headspace or dream world, the game actually paints a very stunning and affecting portrait of someone who is dealing with depression and suicidal ideation. Maybe this is something that only makes sense if you've had someone close to you commit suicide, but I feel like Yume Nikki really accurately portrays the feeling of being on the outside of that situation. Like, when someone commits suicide, there's all these questions that you ask, like, why did they do it? Why didn't they reach out for help? You know, what was so wrong in their life that they needed to do this? You know, the bit people always say is that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it is. For people on the outside, it's impossible to understand. You don't know what was going on in that person's head at the time that they made this decision. Yume Nikki is such a daring work because it attempts to show you what that thought process is like. By putting the whole story into the context of that ending, we can look back and see what was actually going on. The protagonist of this game wasn't just walking into dreams and wandering around. They were exploring their inner space. They were looking at themselves and trying to decide if they liked what they saw. The real paradox here is that to the player, Maratsuki's inner world is really rich and beautiful. Sure, it's sometimes dark and weird, but it's also very exciting. It's full of interesting ideas, interesting characters, beautiful sights and vistas. It's a great place to be. However, we are the player, and the protagonist is the protagonist. We don't know what they're thinking or feeling because the game never tells us until that ending. From their perspective, they didn't see anything good at all. They thoroughly explored their inner space. They took stock of everything that they are, have been, and could be, and decided that they just didn't like it and didn't want to live anymore. It's such a gut punch, but it's also just such an accurate portrayal of how these situations unfold and how it feels to lose someone to suicide. I feel like that's the really, really stunning thing about Yume Nikki, that this weird, goofy, little 16-bit style RPG maker video game gives you an accurate 
representation of what it feels like to lose someone close to you. It's something that's really, really stunning and that has stuck with me for years now. Years and years and years. Yume Nikki is truly one of my favorite games ever and I think it is just a really beautiful and moving piece of art that handles this subject with a surprising amount of thoughtfulness and delicacy. Yume Nikki's take on a bizarre, inscrutable narrative that was presented with the visual style and flair of an old-school JRPG was a huge step forward for this subgenre. And unlike Earthbound, whose influence took a few years to proliferate out into the world, the impact of Yume Nikki was felt almost immediately. A very active fan community quickly sprang up around this game, and one of their favorite pastimes was making new games in the style of Yume Nikki. This started as more explicit fan-made sequels like Two Key, but eventually evolved into full games that were more simply influenced by the style of Yume Nikki. Games like Ibe, for example, which borrow a lot from the Yume Nikki playbook, but put their own spin on the style and genre. As the years progressed, we eventually started to see more full-fledged games that seemed to be equally influenced by Earthbound and Yume Nikki, as well as the whole cottage industry of games in the style that had cropped up in the interim. I'd also be remiss not to mention Undertale, which is maybe the most famous and popular super sad RPG, but a game that I've already spent enough time talking about on this show. The games that caught my eye from the subgenre were the ones that were much more clearly influenced by games like Earthbound and Yume Nikki. Games like Lisa the Painful and Omori, which retain the unique visual style and super dark thematics and storytelling from the aforementioned games. These games to me now are really emblematic of the super sad JRPG subgenre. They're games that look and feel like Super Nintendo era JRPGs, but that have these super dark, layered, and sometimes very complex stories that are filled with dense themes that can be shocking, depressing, and sometimes even problematic. It's a genre that I have a lot of interest in because of my love of Earthbound and Yume Nikki, but I also sometimes don't totally vibe with these games. When I've tried them, a lot of them come off as like really, really edgy, and a lot of them are just really, really player unfriendly. Even Omori, which I'm about to talk about for a bit here, is not a very player friendly game. It's really, really long. Its battle system is ultimately simple, but also weirdly kind of hard to use. It's a difficult game to get into, and I think that you really, really have to be in the mood for it, and you really, really have to want it. That's something that could be said honestly about any of these games. Like, returning to Earthbound now, all these years later, I would say the exact same thing. And Yume Nikki was always kind of a bitter pill to swallow for many reasons. Now that said, I find Omori to be an incredibly fascinating game. 
It's a 2020 release from a studio called Omocat that kind of attempts to blend all of the most notable super sad RPGs into one work. You'll see shades of Earthbound and Yume Nikki and Undertale all rolled up into one epic, super sad JRPG. In a lot of ways, it shouldn't work, but somehow it does. Now, earlier I said that Omori is basically the Kevin can fuck himself of super sad RPGs, and I mean that in kind of the most literal way possible. Like that show, which toggles between two entirely different and binary styles, Omori does the same thing, but it's more like with three or four different styles. The game opens in almost the exact same way that Yume Nikki does. You find yourself in a very isolated, cold and uninviting space, and then have to enter a kind of dream world in order to start the adventure. This dream world is a much more colorful and psychedelic place. It's full of friends and weird sights and strange things to discover, but it's also kind of weird and ominous. We get hints that there's something deeper going on and that there is a really dark reason why you need to travel there from that stark space where you start. As you play the game, even more layers start to unravel. You find out that there's also a kind of real world setting in this game, which is separate from the other two settings. And in this place, you start to learn about what actually happened to the kind of cartoony friend group that's represented in the fantasy part of the game. God, this is so confusing to talk about. This game is so weird. Let me back it up a bit. Like Earthbound, Omori is about a small group of young friends who go on an adventure together. The big difference here is that Omori never plays at having one distinct timeline or presenting things in a linear and simple way. In the fantasy world, we really do seem to be playing some kind of weird, cheery 90s JRPG where the group of friends goes on a very colorful and fun adventure. There are little hints that there's something darker and weirder going on, but it's mostly played pretty straight. In that blank space, which the game calls white space, that we started, we're subjected to kind of pure depression and horror as we see that our silent protagonist is actually dealing with some shit, and there's a very good reason why they're silent. It's not just 90s JRPG shit. Once we get to the real world, however, we find that there's an entirely different storyline going on. Suddenly, our characters are a bit older, they're all entering young adulthood, and in the intervening years, something horrible seems to have happened. The whole point of this storyline is to have us slowly unravel what happened and figure out what is going on with these characters. One of the really interesting things about Omori when compared to games like Earthbound and Yume Nikki, which obviously inspired it, is how much dialogue and story there is in this game. Like I mentioned earlier, this game is long, like 20-ish hours long, and a lot of that is taken up by cutscenes and dialogue and other such things. In many ways, this game is super traditional with how it presents its narrative, 
which is also why it's refreshing that it breaks it into chunks and layers to create that really strange and disorienting effect with the narrative. It's a fascinating work because it feels like it takes place in many different time periods at once. And I don't mean within the story, I mean within the real world that we live in. This game is super weird and super meta. Those throwback JRPG sections feel straight out of the 90s, however, those real world sections feel very, very current. In between, there's all sorts of other strange things that happen that'll make you think of everything from, you know, NES era RPGs to Undertale. There's weird internet humor, there's awkward, cringy dialogue, all sorts of shit pops up in this game. However, once again, it's all anchored by a story that has something to say. It's really weird and it's really dark. I'm not going to say what happens here because I think if you're interested in this lineage of games, Omori is worth playing and that kind of central mystery is going to keep you engaged and interested as you're playing. But I will say that I think the plot itself is really, really good and the way that it handles that plot and slowly unfolds it over the course of game is really fascinating and really, really well done. One thing you'll notice early on is that the game kind of has this creepy pasta-esque feel to it. It frequently lapses into these weird, dark, animated cutscenes that feel very, like, current internet horror. And just like how Yume Nikki's shocking ending could be just read as edgelordy bullshit, these could be read as just kind of pandering to an audience that wants to see this kind of stuff. However, just like in Yume Nikki, I think it's really, really well done. It gives the game a unique atmosphere and a unique vibe, and it also keeps you from ever really understanding what is real in this game. There's a very strong psychedelic aspect to it that I really, really love. You're never sure what's a dream or a hallucination and just what is stark reality when you're playing this game. Even up until the very end, it's kind of hard to tell what is an allegory and what is actually happening. I think this storytelling style works so well in this game and in even some other games that I've played in related styles. I really love the idea of merging disparate visual and storytelling styles in order to tell a kind of messy, personal, character-driven story, especially within a modern context. I think that entropy is super, super important when you're making this kind of work or telling this style of story. Understanding that genres need to change over time in order to feel fresh and current is super important if you want a certain genre or style to survive and thrive over time. Culture changes. People change. Our ideas about society and culture change. And as they do, returning to the past can still be satisfying and interesting, 
But when we're engaging with new works, we want them to feel relevant. We want it to feel like they understand our changing ideas and positions on society and culture. When I first started playing Omori, I definitely didn't expect to feel like it was something very modern or something very fresh because of how many references it makes to the past. You know, how many references it makes to 16-bit video games and games like Yume Nikki that were also inspired by that era. However, I think embracing chaos, embracing disorder, and making something that's really complex and layered is kind of the most modern thing you can do, regardless of any sort of retro aesthetics that you are co-opting to put into your work. I think TV shows like Kevin Can Fuck Himself and games like Omori both get a lot of mileage out of referencing the past in order to present something that feels very current and of the modern day. As the world gets shittier and shittier, I understand that there are going to be a lot of people who want to just look at the past, to remember, to relive, and not have any sort of critical eye cast upon it or anything about it changed. However, personally, I really, really appreciate things that can embrace entropy and that can embrace the ways in which the world has changed and the ways in which we have changed in order to show us something really modern, interesting, different, and ultimately beautiful. When I think about those memories from my childhood, when I think about looking out the window at a super, super dark winter night, I guess now I'm not so interested in recapturing that feeling, but rather understanding everything that's happened in between. Understanding how I've changed as a person and how the world has changed since then. Maybe that makes me a depressing asshole who's just spent an hour ruminating on the ways in which the universe is slowly slouching towards its own heat death, but I guess I just don't really care. Ultimately, I think that art needs to reflect our world and our culture. And I think that making something that references the past and that places itself clearly within a canon doesn't preclude that work from also being modern and feeling fresh and relevant. It's not a binary. It's not either you make something super crazy, weird, and experimental, or you make something that's just starkly a throwback. Omori was a fascinating game to play because it managed to split the difference between those two ideas. And honestly, I hope that people keep making weird and wild games within this sub-sub-sub-genre. As always, I'm excited to see what comes next.